Hi there, it's your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner here. Had the absolute pleasure of welcoming Raj Sisodia onto the podcast today. Raj is the co-founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and is someone that is a real inspiration to me, um, someone that I've been aware of for a, num for a number of, of years, to be honest, but someone that I've only really got deeper into understanding through my good colleague, uh, Perry Timms, as he made me aware of the great work of Bob Chapman at Barry, Barry Waymiller. Um, who, of course, is the the co-writer, the co-author on the excellent book, Everybody Matters, that Raj and Bob Chapman wrote together. What I find absolutely incredible about this conversation is just the base humanity. Really, it just just the fact that the current ways of working, uh, the old outdated mind control ways of working, just aren't yielding value anymore. And, you know, I think that's pretty clear, no matter which way you cut or slice it, as much as people may say, that we need to be striving for profit, we need to be maximizing shareholder value, et cetera. Absolutely, all of those things are important. But as I've said for a long time, you can do that through people and not in spite of people. And I think Raj just keeps on giving and giving and giving more and more examples. He's a great storyteller and some great additional context as to why we do need to be leading a lot more with love and care of people and getting away from self-interest as a way to uh, operate as a 21st century business. So I hope that you find this talk uh, interesting. I absolutely loved it. I'm really grateful for Raj spending the time. And please do offer feedback to him or myself. And uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. This afternoon, I am very grateful to welcome Raj Sisodia onto the podcast. Hi there, Raj. Hi, Gary. How are you? Good I am very you. well. Thank you very much. How about yourself? Great. Yeah, enjoying the beautiful morning here in Boston. Fantastic. Well, just, just before we came on, you gave me an education about a certain team that you're uh, <laughs> happy about as of yesterday. Yes, this is the uh, baseball playoff season right now. And the Red Sox had an epic. Uh, win last night. It was incredibly exciting. And my daughter was here to watch with me, so that's always fun. Yeah. Lovely. It's amazing how things that really don't matter ultimately matter a lot <laughs> at some level, you know. So, uh, yeah. We can stop the podcast there, Raj, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, you could say that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, it was great. So I'm I'm a little sleep deprived because I was up till about two a.m. I think. Oh, well. So, yeah. well, we'll do our best to give you some questions to keep you awake, Raj. So, uh, <laughs> would you, would you mind for any listeners that may not know who you are, just give a bit of a background as to you know your, your sort of field of work and, and what you're passionate about, Raj? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a business professor. Uh, have been for the last thirty-three years, uh, teaching in the U.S. Got my PhD here at Columbia University in nineteen eighty-five or so, and. Um, my field was marketing. That's what I got my PhD in. But over the years, you know, I had a lot of uh, questions about marketing and uh, some frustrations with it and the way it's done and how much money is spent and the consequences of the way in which we market on people and on society uh, broadly. And so a lot of my work was looking at what doesn't work very well and what we need to do to improve it. And that eventually led me 
by asking uh, these kinds of questions to search for a better way of uh, thinking about marketing and more broadly thinking about business. So that's, that was a journey that started uh, around uh, 2004 or so when I started a book, which eventually became uh, Firms of Endearment, How World-Class Companies Profit from Passion and Purpose, which came out in 2007. But that really uh, uncovered for me a new paradigm of business which had been there, but uh, people hadn't really identified it or labeled it as such. So there's a dominant story of business. It's all about profits. It's all about uh, shareholder values, about using people to achieve those goals. And this was another way of being, which is about uh, actually caring for and serving all of your stakeholders and having a reason for being that goes beyond profit. And by doing that and having leaders who are driven by those things, you actually create far more successful enterprises broadly defined, not just defined narrowly as money, but as having a positive impact on human flourishing. So these companies outperform financially, but they also do dramatically better things for their employees, their families of their employees, communities, the environment, customers, suppliers, etc. So it's kind of a win-win all around. So it's a way of doing business that everybody matters and everybody wins. And that seemed to me something worthy of dedicating the rest of my life to which is what I've done since that time. Um, we started the Conscious Capitalism Movement, which basically takes those ideas that we uncovered in terms of endearment, and then along with some of the practitioners of that way of being, like John Mackey of Whole Foods, and Doug Rao of Trader Joe's, and Tyndall of Container Store, and people from Southwest Airlines, and Costco, and others. And we said, here's a different template. You don't have to follow that old, tired, uh, harmful way of doing business is another way. I say it's rooted in love and care. It's not just about self-interest. See, human beings are not just driven by self-interest. We are equally, if not more powerfully, motivated by our need to care and our capacity for caring is, is, is vast. And all of that is left out or has been left out of the world of business. So, so we started this movement, Conscious Capitalism, about 10 years ago. And now it's grown uh, quite a bit. We have chapters uh, all over the world, like 17 or 18 countries and about 37 US cities where we have a presence. So it's been a, a really gratifying and uh, I would say soul satisfying journey to be part of the world of business, but in this way, rather than in the extractive sort of uh, treating people as a means to other ends. Uh, that, that's the mentality of business by and large. So that's what uh, my background has been. And now we're continuing on that journey and uh, going deeper and trying to uh, see, you know, there's no limit to consciousness. And hence, there's really no limit to conscious capitalism. You can't say I've arrived, you know, that I've achieved, you know, enlightenment. I mean, there's never, there's always more we can do. There's always a better way. It doesn't matter how good your, your current way is. So that's the exciting journey. And we just keep pushing the... Uh, the frontiers of this. Wow, that's uh, that's so powerful. Like, can I just pick up on that? I, I love you describing working towards sort of freeing, almost to some extent, the you know human flourishing. It's such a wonderful term, Raj. Would you mind sort of expanding on that a little bit? Where, where did that come from? Is that your term? Is it something that's evolved sort of organically well, with the movement? You know, we talk about higher purpose as one of our four tenets, and so therefore, for conscious capitalism, what is our higher purpose? It is to elevate humanity through business. Right, so elevating humanity is basically promoting human flourishing, and it is flourishing. It's not just uh, you know the economic view of maximizing uh, income and so forth. It's it's promoting overall flourishing 
And of course, we, although we don't have the words in there, but recognizes that human beings cannot flourish unless the planet flourishes and unless all life flourishes and unless we recognize the interconnectedness and interdependence of all things on this planet. And that's one of the big things that business hasn't done. You know, it's really it's looked at cause and effect. It's really looked at, we want to achieve this, therefore we do this. One of the impact of that, uh, if you zoom out, uh, are generally negative. You know, we tend to focus on what we call the main effects. The main effect is making money. That's what we're, and everything else is seen as a side effect. Well, as we say, there's no such thing called a side effect. We do things and there are effects. And all the effects matter. And in fact, some of those so-called side effects might be more ultimately impactful than your so-called main effects. So we need to do business with a spectrum of positive effects, which means you know, creating social, cultural, economic, uh, emotional, spiritual, ecological, physical uh, well-being. You know, we talk about eight kinds of wealth that businesses can either create or destroy. And we need to do all of those. And it's not a trade-off. You know, a big part of this is getting rid of trade-off thinking. That, you know, that everything is a compromise. If you want more of this, you've got to push, you know, have less of this. No. There is no win without a win-win. Is the mentality going in. And it's incredible that when you give people that challenge and that constraint, you know, human creativity is essentially infinite. It's the one unlimited thing on this planet is human creativity. And yet for most of us, we never fully engage in that because that only gets switched on when we are driven by a purpose, when we feel cared for and safe, right? And we create the conditions in which that can happen. Most businesses don't create those conditions at all. People are seen as objects, you know, you're told to do your job. You know, so the, the vast uh, majority of what we're capable of is never actually comes to the surface. You say most people have been born and they live and they die with their music still inside them. Because mm. we never created the conditions. We say it's the, the seed and the soil. The seed is incredibly potent. The human seed has become even more potent over time. We are more intelligent today than ever before. We're more conscious, we're more caring, we're more, you know, integrated in some ways, you know, in terms of masculine, feminine, and other things. But the soil remains toxic, and the soil is what we create in organizations. It's the culture, it's the values, it's the unspoken things. And so we need to, and that's what we're doing to our planet, right? We're destroying the soil. And, uh, and that's what's leading to life, you know, withering away. So that's the same thing in organ organizations consist of organisms. And we have made them these disembodied, dehumanized, mechanized entities. Or even worse, you know, we treat business like a form of war. Right? War is businesses like battle and customers are the prize and employees are these soldiers and uh, competitors are the bitter enemies to be vanquished. I mean, there's a lot of that. And that's, that's actually, you know, it's kind of a natural outcome of the way in which capitalism evolved. You know, we look to the military because we didn't have any large organizations to learn from. So armies were the only large organizations that existed. So we borrowed the command and control and the hierarchy and the language of strategy and tactics and operations and front lines. All of that comes from the military. And with that, it comes a mindset. You know, that is inherently a lose-lose mindset. You know, even though a war that you win, you know, ultimately you've lost. Because... 
you know, the best war is the one you avoid and every war plants the seeds for the next one. So business is a win-win game if you do it right. So that's where we need different ways of thinking. We essentially need a new operating system or a new philosophy, a new philosophical foundation for capitalism and business, which goes way beyond what we had. I mean, Adam Smith was brilliant. He gave us one of history's great, beautiful insights, which is freedom leads to prosperity. Right? And these are two things human beings value greatly and they're connected. So that's, that's beautiful. So we built a system based on the idea of people pursuing their self-interest, right? Rooted in their own free will. But we left out the other side, which was a human need to care, which was also Adam Smith, the theory of moral sentiments, right? which he wrote 17 years prior, which was about that. And we, we left that out. So I like to say capitalism had a mother and a father they were both embodied in Adam Smith, right? You have the father energy of self-interest and the mother energy of caring, but we, we ignore the mother energy as we tend to do. You know, we humans tend to take our mothers for granted, right? And uh, that's the most important thing. So, so I think we're moving towards wholeness, which is why I'm now obsessed with healing because healing, the definition of healing is to become whole. And we haven't been whole as human beings, most of us. We're fragmented internally, and our societal systems have not been whole because they've operated on a limited uh, understanding of what human beings are about. Right? Most of them are rooted in this idea of self-interest or economic rational, you know, value maximization, etc. That's not that's not the totality of what is a human being. So I think moving towards wholeness which would then heal us. If we become whole, we would become healed. And that's, I think, what we're trying to bring in here is the idea of wholeness, because we've really, you know, at best we've been, a, we've reflected one quarter of what it means to be a human being. And I would say even one eighth, perhaps. <laughs> and this is about the rest of it, the missing pieces in it. We've been sort of dismembered. We need to remember. So... Anyway, I forgot what your question was, but that's my answer. <laughs> it's beautiful. No, you're, you're touching on a number of the things I wanted to, to touch on. What yeah. I'm really interested in, Raj, if, you, if you've explained all that for me. So we're really talking here about almost the sort of you know, the work system, how the people operate, how they led, etc. If you go back towards the education system, do you feel that the education system is, I know it changes around the world, but is that doing what we need for the next generation of leaders around wholeness and inclusion oh, no. and sort oh, of... No. no, absolutely not. Our education system is a huge barrier to our evolution in this way. And that includes all the way from primary through, uh, you know, through graduate school, I mean, in business. I and mean, business schools, to me, are a huge barrier to positive change in business. It's because we are wedded to our theories, and these are treated as gospel, and agency theory, and shareholder maximization, and Milton Friedman. I mean, these are the deities. And, you know, most uh, business faculty don't question that. And we teach that to idealistic young people, you know, who come, some of whom come to business school, you know, wanting to change the world. And then they're drawn into this, this paradigm of, you know, I was reading somewhere that there's a guy who does a lot of work with mushrooms in the U.S. And that, that's a massive area in itself. And there's enormous potential for all kinds of benefits from that. And because of his work, a lot of young students have now been drawn to universities, to graduate school, to focus on doing research in that area. So they go there wanting to save the world and, and the professors want them to study yeast. 
you know, who work on yeast. <laughs> Spend four years digging into one tiny thing. So that's, I think, business schools are part of the problem. So I would say our education system definitely, as many people say, it was rooted in the industrial age and it was basically trying to create assembly line workers and so forth. You know, it's basically giving people a set of information that you know, nowadays you can get. We're not teaching people, is we're not giving wisdom. We're not teaching people how to live. You know, we need a school of life in a way to understand uh, what matters and what doesn't matter and so forth. I mean, so I think, yeah, there's this huge need for change in our education systems generally. And Sir Ken Robinson has some wonderful talks about that. He was actually the MC of our first uh, Conscious Capitalism uh, main conference. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, no, it's, I've got to say, he shifted my my thinking when I first saw um, his first TED talk was you know really quite mind-blowing around how skills uh, you know how schools kill creativity and I, I know there is yeah, some work yeah. going on um, you know I look around you look at things like with Ricardo Semler in Brazil and how he's sort of tried to change how education operates but it's still we see we still okay. see a bit of yeah. this, don't we to, to going back yeah, to yeah. it's <laughs> a long way yeah yeah in terms of, so come, sort of come back up to speed with regards, I really enjoyed your TED talk where you were talking about the healing organization. Um, yeah. I've not seen a book as yet, Raj, to that name come out. Is that on its no. way? No, book is, uh, we're writing as we speak. Okay. No, it's ongoing. So the book deadline is February 7th. You know, I, it was due this month, actually. Okay. To the publisher. But then I decided, you know, over the summer and over the last six or seven months, that if I'm going to write a book about healing, I really need to learn more about healing. I need to experience healing, you know, myself. I think all of us need to heal. There's hardly any of us who are fully healed in that sense. So I just felt the need to slow down on the book and, and go through some experiences, including a silent retreat, a retreat in the Himalayas, uh, including a trip into the rainforest uh, in Ecuador, uh, and a variety of other things. Uh, and it really has been beneficial you know this book to us is a sacred undertaking because it is speaking to you talk about vulnerability i mean you know speaking to deep pain that's out there and everybody feels the need for healing at every level individual all the way to societal and planetary and therefore we want to do justice to that theme to the extent we're we are capable of it so we don't want to rush it and as you say you can't write what you don't know you can't teach what you haven't experienced. So, so I think that's in that spirit, we delayed it a little bit. So it's going to be now uh, submitted on, by February 7th and should come out roughly a year from now. Okay. So it's still a ways to go. But it's been the most incredibly moving and uh, inspiring experience to work on it. I mean, we are literally moved to tears just writing these stories. You know? So it's just uh, that to me is always a test of the power of any ideas, does it engage you emotionally and spiritually, not just intellectually? And that happened with Firms of Endearment when I wrote that 10 years, 12 years ago. And it's happening with this book. You know, there's just a deep emotional resonance with it. And I think that tells you something. When, when your body has a, when you have a physical response to a thought or an idea, there's power there that, that we need to pay attention to. So yeah, it's, it'll come out in about a year. We have some amazing stories in that book. Oh, it's amazing. As I say, just for any listeners that, that, that are listening, so you know, I'm really grateful for you to join me today, Raj, because you know, I was moved physically 
by listening to you talking to you know to Bob Chapman on one of the Barry <coughs> Waymiller podcast and yeah just I don't think these conversations are happening enough where we just genuinely just settle into a place of vulnerability just to go look how are you feeling what's going on for yeah. you you know what does it mean you know we're just so busy 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 and I'm just wondering what what what's, what was your aim of your book you know what was you what was the ultimate sort of goal for you with with the healing organization what what would be a success what would that look like for you of this book well you know james baldwin the great uh, african-american writer said not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced and i think we need to in the world of business face up to the fact that the way in which we run businesses the way we lead the way we operate organize is causing an extraordinary amount of suffering and until we acknowledge that and see that right uh, you know there's a buddhist thing about starting with not knowing and then being bearing witness right and then taking action right? so we want to start by making people aware you know that underneath the surface you've got people that are suffering deeply they're suffering because life is tough anyway they're suffering because financially you know at least half of americans are deeply stressed to the point of being on the edge of disaster you know financial disaster 50% of americans have less than 400 dollars in the bank for example so it's a rich country and a booming economy right now low unemployment and yet people are 60% of households are technically insolvent right so there's enormous financial stress which then leads to other kinds of stress physical stress people are dealing with life challenges whether it's elderly parents or special needs kids or whatever and then the work makes it worse incredible amounts of stress right dehumanization heart attacks are 20% higher on monday morning right 120,000 extra deaths a year in the us alone of employees are attributed to the way in which we work Our employee engagement is only 15% worldwide. Um, 88% of Americans feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them as, as a human being. Right? So it's all there. All the evidence is in our face. We can choose to see it or not see it. As they say, you will, you will see it when you believe it. So part of it is creating awareness. You talk about awareness as one of your words, right? <clears throat> And inclusion, I talk about that as well. because most companies operate with kind of a caste system you know like we have in india there's a caste system of sort of the managerial side of the house and all the people with the degrees and the full time jobs and the benefits and all of that and even they're suffering it's not like they're you know having a joy ride there's a lot of pain there too but on the other side you've got the people with hourly jobs with no job security with no benefits with no health care with very low pay with no respect with no dignity with no forgiveness no understanding you know nothing i mean life for them is hellish and it gets worse when they get to work and, and so there's an incredible amount of suffering so we want to create an awareness that there is a lot of suffering but at the same time we want to inspire people with stories of companies that have taken people so most companies they take people who are relatively whole and healthy you know they start over time they get burned out stressed out you know they get chronic conditions and all of these things happen to them and there are businesses that are, do the opposite they take people who have actually been burned out stressed out and been through almost a, they're in a post traumatic stress disorder kind of state and turn their lives around and not only their lives the lives of their children and their families and their communities 
Barry Waymiller and Bob Chapman are a good example of that. I think the seeds of this idea got planted when I wrote that book with Bob called Everybody Matters, because they were indeed taking companies that were dying and struggling, whose people had been laid off many times and were operating with you know, zero security and, and tremendous strain and stress in their lives, and, and acquiring now about 105 companies at last count and turning them all around never selling a single one. Same people, same business, same location. What was struggling and dying is now thriving. People who were you know, in, in, in this PTSD state are now thriving and flourishing and their children are families. So he turned the lives of these people and these towns and these businesses around. And he's gonna buy another 10, 15 companies this year. And I said, well, why are you doing that? You don't need the money and you don't need the aggravation. And he's 74, you got, you know, what does he have? 26 grandchildren, I think. And I said, you should be enjoying <laughs> <laughs> he said, I He said, I don't know how much time I have left. And uh, on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the, or the money we made, but the lives that we touched. And I want to touch as many lives as I can before I die. And that's what they say, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. That's their bottom line. So I said to him, Bob, you're not, uh, you're not growing a business, you're spreading a ministry. You know, this is a ministry. So I use that language in Everybody Matters and ultimately that led to this idea of business as healing. Because if you have a healing business, the more you grow, the better the world gets, right? But that's not how most businesses grow. Most businesses are extractive and they're maximizing profits, which means squeezing people and squeezing suppliers and squeezing communities. And the more they grow, the worse the world gets. They spread suffering as they grow. It's, a, it's like growing an empire versus spreading a ministry. You know, if you look at empires in human history, they've grown through conquest, through war, you know, through killing, through devastation, through ruin, all to satisfy the ego of a, of a leader who wants to be known as great. Right? Alexander the Great. What is that greatness? You know, if it's not rooted in goodness, what is greatness? It's just great harm, right, and great suffering. And so, um, again, I've forgotten the question, but that was kind of the journey. So it came. One was that dimension, an example, and vulnerability. I mean, when I went there for the first time, uh, even before I decided whether I was going to do the book, and I just sat with a room full of middle-aged blue-collar men in their 50s and 60s, uh, mostly with high school or less education, in rural Wisconsin. I mean, this is about as mid middle America as you can get. Right? And I simply asked uh, one question. I said, tell me how it used to be and how it changed when you became part of Barry Wayne and got acquired. And before they could even speak, many of them were all choked up. And some literally had tears on their face. I said, wow, that alone tells me a lot. You know, if you can get middle-aged blue-collar men in, in industrial Midwest America to cry in front of each other, there's something powerful happening here, you know, which I've never seen before. So that was, you know, showed me again vulnerability. They, they joke at Barry Wengler that said, we measure our success in man tears. In their leadership development programs, whatever it is, you know, emotions. Allowing people to express that in an encouraging direction. So that was one, and then the other, the other thing was this, uh, this feminine-masculine split, 
uh, and, and the suppression of the feminine. And that's something I've been talking about for years and then I ended up writing a book about that, integrating the masculine and feminine together. That's called Shakti leadership. So that's another kind of wholeness, right? Which is that masculine feminine split within us and most of us, we all have both sides, but the feminine is suppressed and, and, uh, and repressed in the world and society generally and, and certainly women are subjugated and sidelined and so forth. But that's really been the missing, the big missing piece, right? Because humanity has these two wings, but one wing has been tied up. And how far can you go on one wing? You, know, you go around in circles, right? There was a lot of violence and, and so forth that happened. So, so it's about becoming whole in that dimension. That's, that's the caring side. The feminine is right the caring side of human beings the nurturing compassionate well all of those things that's what's been missing and hence we've caused all this suffering because we have become hyper masculine right everything is war and everything goes in a war right it's all so um so yeah those are the sort of streams that led me to this idea of healing as a meta purpose of business and I'd already been using it as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. Like I have an acronym for everything. Okay. So this was the acronym for purpose. I said, purpose is heroic, evolving, aligning, loving, inspiring, natural, and galvanizing. That adds up to healing. Right. But then as I thought about it, I said, no, that's, it's not just an acronym. It actually is, it's, it's the key word that describes at some level, every purpose needs to be a healing purpose because what is business? Business is a way to meet people's needs, right? It's a mechanism that we've evolved in a free society that we get to sense and respond to each other's needs. As customers, as employees, you know, as community, and all the needs, right? So employees have needs, we meet those needs, customers have. So if we come at it from the energy of meeting people's needs, which means we are serving them, taking care of them in that dimension, then you are healing them. You know, when you meet somebody's real needs, you are actually making them whole in that dimension. And that is inherently a healing act. If you're hungry and I bring you food, that's a healing act, right? If you're tired, I give you shelter or a bed, that's a healing act. You know, whatever be your need. So if that's the energy that drives you, then your business is a healing business. But if you come at it purely from self-interest, which is to say, how can I view you as a customer and get your money, right? Or employee, how can I pay you as little and get you to work as much? You know, then you're starting, it's about using and exploiting rather than serving and getting value for. So I think when we lead, so we need both, element, both elements, right? If you only have caring without the self-interest, then we won't have a sustainable business because it won't be able to, uh, you know, to rely on donations, run out of money at some point. We need both, but we need to lead with the caring side. Right now we're leading with the self-interest and we're grudgingly caring <laughs> when we have to, you know? Oh, we have to take better care of our customers you know, because they hate us, okay. Right, as opposed to saying, no, we say we're gonna capture market share. I said, no, you're going to serve customers. You're not gonna capture market share, you're gonna serve customers better, right? <laughs> that kind of energy. So what energy do we lead with? I think that's, to me, that's the more human side of human beings is the caring side. And that's, that's what we need to lead with. And then we need to make sure that we are doing enough to sustain the business financially and otherwise. 
And as it turns out, you know, with all these things, it's another, like freedom leading to prosperity, another beautiful positive irony is that, is that caring businesses are thriving businesses, right? Endearing companies are enduring companies. You know, these kinds of businesses succeed better because everybody wants them to thrive, everybody loves them, right? People aren't plotting, how can I take advantage of this company? You know, you're trying to figure out. A great example when Whole Foods, one of our sort of core companies, they had a flood one year after they were founded in Austin and a for-profit company, right? So, but they were deeply loved by their employees and their customers and their communities. You know, they stood for something and they were very successful, but they had a flood that destroyed everything including the store, the cash registers, the refrigeration equipment, all the inventory, they had no warehouse, they had no savings, they had no balance in the bank. So they were basically out of business. They were $400,000 in the rent that morning because everything was destroyed. And there was no way to recover from this. And yet people showed up and, and you know, customers showed up and people who lived in the community showed up and others showed up and, and they got to work cleaning up the store. And they just said, we're not gonna let you die. And do what we can. People had bake sales and they had music concerts to raise money for a for-profit company, right? So that's the power of business. When you do it in this way, the love you know, just gets reciprocated. It's the most powerful thing. And that's what allowed that company to actually survive. And today it's 100,000 employees and $15 billion has had a huge impact on the culture. So, cool. so yeah, that's where the healing thing is coming from. It's it, it's so powerful and it, it's quite a challenge for me as well, Raj, because I actually work in the uh, in the oil and gas industry and it's and for probably for the last six months. <laughs> but it's really so I've been on quite personally a spiritual journey myself, sort of understanding how mind consciousness thoughts actually implies our our human experience quite recently. And it's and I'm really questioning, honestly, you know, and listening to you talk, we operate very much in a scarcity environment. You know, it comes out of the ground. You know, there's a scarce amount of it, and it is very much that war-like approach to actually, yeah. you know, you've got you've got a product someone needs, you can push the yeah. price up because you can get away with it. It's a very different approach, yeah. and I'm I, I'm really wrestling with it, Raj. To be honest, really yeah. wrestling. With it. Yeah. No, I agree. That's the energy that pervades. You know, it's because the hyper-masculine is very short-term. It's very win-lose at best. Right. It's. Uh, yeah, I agree. No, but you know, in every industry, there's you know, that's about energy and power, and there's there's better ways to do those things. And, you know, over time, <clears throat> we will evolve in that direction. But, uh, Could I come back to you on your? You spoke about the sort of feminine and masculine side, and we you know we need both wings, which I think absolutely is, is the case. How how important for you is language as part of this conversation? Because I see. I wrote a blog quite recently actually around soft skills still seems to be a second-hand term in sort of masculine-led environment. Yeah. Is language yeah. important things you think for this movement as well? Yeah, language is a bit of a challenge um, because there are very few men who like to be told either that they they have a feminine side that, you know, or that they need to cultivate it. You know, it's almost seen as an insult to them. So men have this very fragile ego about these things. Uh, and you know, in our in our culture, you know, we make fun, right, of men who are caring and so forth, right? I mean, all these words, ecstasy and so forth. Uh, and likewise for women, you know, to be called masculine. So I think yes, we need better language. 
uh, whether it's uh, relational or tran and transactional. I don't know if that's a language. So sometimes language can get in the way, but, but we should not let that be a barrier. We should need to be able to look past that and recognize the truth of it, right? We all come from others. We all have the capacity for caring. You know, we all have feelings, emotions. We systematically in a patriarchal society shut those things down. Little boys are told, you know, don't cry, be a man. <laughs> Even if they're feeling deep pain about something. Right? So and that becomes incredibly unhealthy. It creates this inner child, the wounding of the inner child. And that shows up later as violence and aggression. Right? It's very, very unhealthy. So yes, I agree, languaging uh, can be a challenge, uh, especially for men. But... Uh, so maybe I'm thinking the father energy and the mother energy, but even that's a challenge because men don't want to say that I need to show some more mother energy. <laughs> you know, the, the phrase that we use now is that uh, uh, you know, as a leader, you need to be the wise fool of tough love. Okay, so you need to be wise, which is your higher self, foolish, which is your child self, and then tough, masculine, and love feminine. So you've got all four of those elements. Because that's the other aspect of wholeness, is that we need to reconnect with the inner child and that innocence and joy. You know, without that, you don't have creativity and you don't have, you know, you don't enjoy life if you don't have that inner child. Okay. Well, most of us have a wounded inner child. We don't have a healthy inner child. And then the higher self, which is our wise, elder, parent side. So we need to cultivate all four of those qualities, right? And and then so and then so become whole by cultivating all four, recognizing what is your default, what is overdeveloped in you, and then working on the other complementary pieces of it. And that can be done. That's why in our book Shakti Leadership, you know, we have approaches or methods to do that. And and then once you're whole, then you need to have the discernment to know what's called for in a given situation. Some situations call for toughness or love or, or uh, foolishness or wisdom. And then the flexibility to be able to show up in that way, in that situation, while remaining authentic. It's not like you're acting and being somebody you're not, because now you are all those things, mm -hmm. right? But you can now you know, bring out that side. That's what's needed. So, so I think, again, that's wholeness. And operating from a place of wholeness. So healing yourself, until we heal ourselves as a leader, as a person, doing anything, we cannot bring healing in the world until we have healed internally ourselves. Right? So a leader who is fragmented and wounded inside, like the one we have right now in the US, is going to bring enormous suffering to others because they're not capable of doing anything else because they have these unresolved things within them and is part of that for you Raj around that lack of just a, a theme with this this podcast the lack of that person to be vulnerable to say hey I've got something going on I'm going to deal with it and then I can be a better version of myself afterwards is that, is that, is that part of yeah. it? Is that part of it do you think or oh it is yeah so that's the awareness right so that's the uh, self-knowing so you have to know yourself, right, as a starting point. And then, you know, realize what you need to 
do to him, I'll become whole. And then once you do that, then love yourself, right? Uh, so you have to start. Otherwise, if you don't do those things, they're going to cause suffering in others. That's what we see. You know, all of the dictators and all of the uh, people who have been responsible for all the suffering in the world, whether it's Hitler or Stalin and you know, people, you know, they had all this inner wounding within them, right? And we have systems that allow such people to rise to incredible heights of power. You know, power and virtue need to go together. But in our societal and political systems, as well as in our business systems, we've created conditions that are hostile to virtue, elevating into power, right? So the most Machiavellian and power-hungry people seek and attain power. And the people who are virtuous do not seek power, but those are the ones who we need to empower. That's, that's a challenge, I think, business level as well as societal level. How do we reconcile this thing that people who would do the most good with power don't seek out power? Right? We have exceptions, of course, you know, whether it's Gandhi or Mandela or King or something, they didn't, you know, they have the moral power. That should be the foundation of power. Right? So, yeah. A little bit of a left field question, if I may, um, Raj, because as I'm listening to talk about wholeness, so the strengths-based approach within leadership, if I may ask the question, so I, I, I still wrangle myself a little bit between this idea of focusing on your strengths and to some extent just recruiting to cover your weaknesses. Now, yeah. What's your, take, yeah. what's your take on that? Well, <clears throat> I would say, yes, you cannot be outstanding at all things. And at a, at a broad level, you know, what I just described as wholeness, you know, I think those you can, all of us can do, right? Because those I think are essential elements for all of us. We need to have wisdom that will end all four of us. We need to, we need to you know, end this split within. Now, beyond that, each of us has certain things that characterize our nature. Your nature is to be a certain way. A bird is a certain way and a horse is a certain way. Right? You've got a certain nature to you. You can't expect a bird to do what a horse does and vice versa. So, so be, but be a whole bird and be a whole horse. And then, you know, you can then, as I said, as you said, uh, complement what your essential qualities are in the team with others. But you need to be authentic in terms of who you are, right? So know yourself, become whole, love yourself, but then be yourself and express yourself as a leader, as a human being. So the qualities that are most inherent to you need to be projected into the world. While recognizing that there are other things that are also needed. So you might be incredibly creative and so forth. We need somebody who's also very detail-oriented and who can do the execution, right? who can implement. So we might be the public, the <clears throat> The idea monkeys and the ringmasters. I mean, you need you need both, right? So uh, and that's why a lot of great companies have co-founders. They have two people who bring that complementarity. But I think so. That's important. But I think at the same at the same time, you cannot look to others to complete you. You need to be complete in yourself, even in relationships, right? 
we have this idea that you complete them. Right? So, to, so one plus one equals one, then that's somebody got lost. <laughs> so each you need to be a whole person connecting to another whole person and a team of whole people rather than a team of fragmented people that somehow add up to. Because when you have a team of whole people, it's going to add up to more than the sum of its parts. When you have a team of fragmented people, it's going to add up to less than the sum of its parts. So you have six people operating as, as three people rather than as, uh, as nine people, I suppose. Fantastic. Who or what right now, um, Raj, you could only pick one thing. Who or what is inspiring you the most right now? I would say it's the uh, the leaders that we are talking to and the companies and the, the way in which they are creating healing. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, you know, it's people like N.K. Chaudhary who runs Jaipur Rugs out of Jaipur, India, and has transformed that industry and the lives of 40,000 women weavers <clears throat> who are considered untouchable and illiterate and abused and, you know, they've got horrible lives. And he is dedicated to serving them. He said they are the innocents in the world. We need to serve the innocents. They are being exploited as, you know, abused by everybody. You know, their husbands, their in-laws, even their own families, contractors, everybody is abusing them. He's there to elevate them. Uh, so it's, I would say right now, it's all the leaders that we are, we are learning from, <clears throat> that we are writing about. <clears throat> uh, Bernie Glassman, who started Greystone Bakery in Yonkers, New York. Because Greystone has the highest concentration of homeless people in the country. It's also located in the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest counties in the country. So how do we solve this problem? And he started a business. And in that business, most of the homeless people have either some kind of a mental health issue or they have some kind of a criminal history. You know, the US is a country that has an extremely harsh criminal justice system and incarcerates a higher percentage of its population than any other country by far in the world. And more than North Korea, more than China, Cuba, or any other country you want to identify. And so there's 70 million Americans with some kind of a prison record or criminal record. 70 million, not 330. The same number that have a college degree have some kind of criminal record, and therefore they get shut out from most jobs. So Bernie Glassman said, I want to give people a first chance. They never even got a first chance. They grew up in ghettos surrounded by drugs and crime, terrible schools. So he's created this company that they said they make brownies and they sell them to Ben and Jerry's and Whole Foods. And he said, we, we don't hire people to bake brownies. We bake brownies to hire people. So they, are, they practice open hiring. And if you need a job, put your name on the list. They hire the next person without background checks, without interviews. They train them, get them a job. They help them with housing, they help them with childcare, they help them with all the things that you need to get on your feet and, and get going in life. And, also, and, and again, these are for-profit businesses. These are all, you know, these are not non-profits. So, so yeah, that's what I'm inspired by right now. What's possible? The incredible power and beauty of business to elevate in people's lives. <clears throat> One of these weavers I talked to for an hour in Jaipur in July, Shanti, Illiterate woman, six children, the whole story abused by her in-law, her husband's alcoholic, you know, and she was, contractors would never pay her on time or pay her less, you know, miserable, miserable life. <clears throat> Today, 
three of her children are in college. One is already graduated. The other three are on their way to graduate. She has learned to read and write and do basic accounting and speaks a little bit of English. She's got 11 looms and she's got 25 women working under her. Her life and that of future generations in her family has been completely transformed by this business. Right? Not by charity, not by somebody giving a handout, but they have enabled her now to create a life. And she's she says of Mr. Chaudhary, I said, what do you think about him? She said, well, I don't even know how to describe him. He's more than my mother and father. To me, he's God. Because he has given me life. I didn't have a life before this. You know, That's the power of business. That's the power of a leader. And by the way, the word that he uses is innocence. He said, he said I am an innocent. He said, I have always been in his own, his own nature. You know? So the words that, you know, I love your words are the four words that I'm now bringing in this book are, are truth, to show people the reality of what business you know, has impact. Uh, simplicity, uh, love, and innocence. And if we can bring those into business, that would be tremendously healing because that's what's missing. Those are the energies that are missing. It's really powerful because those four words for me you just described, Raj, are a nice mix of masculine and feminine and how they come across to some extent. Yeah, so truth, simplicity. I haven't categorized them that way. So are you putting truth as masculine? I, simplicity, I think... love, right? And, uh... and innocence. There's, 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 there's just something about how you communicated that to me that just felt a good mix between the two Yeah. in the moment. Yeah, I think there's a child thing in there, the innocence, you know, there's the love, we call that feminine. There's the truth, which is masculine. It's also kind of the good, the true, and the beautiful, you know, the platonic ideals, right? The things that we don't have to justify for, you know, by any other means other than these are the worthy things that are worthy to worthy pursuits in their own right. So yeah, there's something fundamental to that. And, and, and simplicity is beautiful. I mean, you know, true beauty is right. Yeah. Well, if, if you were going to come across barriers, I could imagine that you operate in a fantastic space um, around these, you know, these visionary leaders, people looking to make a, a difference bigger than themselves, Raj. Do you ever come up against any naysayers, maybe some people that are just so deeply ingrained in the old way of working they just can't see? how conscious capitalism could ever be a good thing yeah yeah they're out there okay of course uh they don't typically show up at our conferences <laughs> right? and uh so you know we're we attract you know it's like we're 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 waving a magnet out there and you know there are people who are sticking to it and there are others who are not and that's fine one of the things i learned from bob chapman is courageous patience and you know, the metaphor they use, they talk about getting the right people on the bus. You know, that's something that uh, Jim Collins said, you've got to get the right people on the bus and in the right seats, right? This is always about the right people. <clears throat> he said, it's not about the right people, it's about having a safe bus and a driver who knows where they're going. Right? And everybody gets to get a seat on the bus. And if you don't get on this time, don't worry, the, the bus will come around again, right? And you will get it when you get it. 
So yes, there are naysayers out there. There are people who are deeply wedded to the old paradigm. There are people whose whole identity is tied up in that, right? And it would be destroying their own ego to, to uh, walk away from the worldview that they've had for a long time. And that's fine. You know, if people come to these things in their own way, they have their own awakenings, you know, uh, realizations. Some never will. And that's okay too, you know, that's everybody has their journey. We do what we can to, uh, so it's a dual metaphor. It's either we're planting, so when I speak 80, 90 times a year all over the world with these things, and many of us in the movement are spreading these words, <clears throat> we're in a way planting seeds. And some of them may take decades to actually germinate. Like there's a famous picture of Death Valley, California. Sir Ken Robinson used actually when he was our MC. Death Valley is a place where everything is dead. There's no plant life, insect life, animal life, nothing left. So a picture of a particular part of the valley which is completely barren. And then one year some rain fell there. And then suddenly you see the same valley is covered with wildflowers. So there were seeds that were dormant for God knows how long. But when the conditions were, were present, you know, they, they, they flourished. So we are planting seeds and we are sprinkling water. The seeds are already there that we can have germinate. The others, we plant the seed and then something else will cause it to germinate. So that's what we're doing. So, so yeah, people push back against the idea of healing. You know, they find it, some people find it uh, insulting, you know, to suggest that they're causing suffering. So what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm providing jobs and I'm providing you know, products, right? So yeah, there's resistance uh, out there, of course. Uh, and right now we're going through a period of, uh, well, I call it the Empire Strikes Back. Because kind of the Star Wars analogy, right? We've had a force awakening. We've had this opening of consciousness in the last three decades, really since 1989, I think, the turning point. And a lot has changed for the better in society in terms of consciousness and women's rights and gay rights and, you know, and all, all, all lots of things. Uh, but at the same time, there is a perceived threat to the established order and the way things were. There's a nostalgia for you know, the good old 50s, for example, in the US, which was a time of a kind of apartheid, <laughs> segregation and all kinds of abuse and you know, stuff. But you know, so there's the so you know, a lot of change happens and the force awakens and the empire strikes back. I think that's what's happening now with the Brexit and the Trump and the guy in Brazil and the guy in the Philippines and the, uh, all these men. I think that's that old order. I don't think that will last. And I think eventually you don't stop progress. And, and oh, you know, progress doesn't happen in a straight line. It kind of goes in a spiral. Mm -hmm. So there's a period of retrenchment. But then you're off on a second trajectory after that. I think that's going to happen now. You know, women and young people and many others are being awakened in a way that they would not have been awakened had we not gone through what we're going through right now. So ultimately, you know, this could be something that serves us, a necessary step you know, So, well. So we'll see. It's the return of the Jedi. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love this, and I'm, I'm conscious of time, Raj, so I won't yes. keep you much longer. I just, I'm really intrigued by, by, by this last, last part of the conversation, because if, if, we're look, if you look at technology, so, you know, technology sort of took us down the Industrial Revolution, bums on seats, you know, 
people stuck in particular roles for 100 years. Technology now is almost the savior, I feel, that it's actually connecting us en masse as human yeah. beings to yeah. other like-minded or challenging way of thinking. So technology almost took us down a rabbit hole and now it's taken us back out again, is how I see it. How do you sort of see technology enabling the movement or the expansion of conscious capitalism? Yeah. Well, technology is a tool and every tool can be used with different levels of consciousness. So you can use it as a way to imprison people, as a way to use people, as a way to burden people. As we did, I think, in the industrial age, in many ways, we created, you know, the assembly line, the repetitive motion work, and all. We took the soul and the spirit and even the mind out of work. Just treated people as a pair of hands. I think the same thing is true today. Out of all the artificial intelligence and everything else, if we, if we come with a consciousness of elevating and serving people and enriching life rather than replacing uh, people, uh, I think that's, that will then lead us down a certain path. You know, all the things that have happened with the web and with the connectivity and mobile phones and all of it, each of those, there's a paradox within it, right? The web has informed us incredibly, you know, but it has created information overload and we don't know what's true and what's not. We are connected together with technology incredibly today, but at the same time, we have less human-to-human -human connection. That's actually a big problem. We are more intelligent than ever. Our IQ is rising rapidly, uh, but are we gaining in wisdom? You know, do we have perspective? Are we even teaching that? We're living longer, but are we aging healthily? Right? Uh, we have the rise of feminine values, but can that become the hyper-feminine? Does it mean the end of men? As some, you know, it's not it's not replacing; it's supposed to complement and, and, and augment. So, so it's the consciousness with which we deal with these questions and what we can do with them that will decide the impact. So, I think in a world of higher and higher technology, the need for the human side is even greater. Uh, so, augmenting human or humanity, I think, is what what should be driving our development and and use of technology. And I think it's happening. That's Sassy Fantastic. Well, look, Rod, it's been an absolute joy, an absolute joy to, to, to meet you and speak to you today. So how can people reach out to you? What's the best way if people want to follow your progress with a new book or with Conscious Capitalism? What's well, so there's my website, which is uh, rajasodia.com. So that has information about me and how to get in touch with me. And then there's consciouscapitalism.org, which is our movement. Uh, so you can find out about that, where there's a chapter, you know, where you live, or if you want to start a chapter, if you want to attend our events. So all of that information is on that website. Fantastic. Well, look, an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you spending the time today, Raj. Thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Hi there, this is your host Gary Turner, just wrapping up this fantastic podcast with Raj Sisodia. There's just so, so many takeaways for me. Um, and it's just, yes, I'm still internalizing a lot of the, the feedback and the insight that Raj kindly shared today. But I think that the big takeaways for me are around this absolute move back towards humanity, humanity in the workplace, humanity in ourselves and humanity in society. For far too long, we've been myopically focused on shareholder value and profits, which whilst they're both important, they can't be the end game. That can't be why we're all put on this earth, just to make money. 
um, as much as it gives us some nice, uh, nice things to own, some materialistic extrinsic items. Those things aren't what drive us. And this is something that I've been on a journey to fully understand only over the last two or three years. You know, I spent my 20s and 30s, as most of us do, with the out-of-date education system leading us towards materialistic extrinsic items being a measure of success. Whereas I've learned myself over the last two years that it could not be further from the truth and that absolutely it's about meaning. It's about feeling like we're making a difference bigger than ourselves. It's about helping other pe lifting other people up to, to reach their peak performance and thereby helping ourselves do the same. And, you know, so much of Raj's messaging just really confirmed that to me. You know, he spoke about that, you know, we need to be looking to perform, perform financially. We need to absolutely be performing. But it's dramatically better if we do things for the employees, families and their suppliers. If we do this through people and not in spite of people. And I think one of the other reflections for me was around the fact that, to quote Raj, the soil remains toxic and the soil is what we create in our organisations. And the idea that we've not been tilling healthily that soil for so many years now really does, you know, it gives us a stark reflection as to why we have what we have in terms of quite often toxic um, leadership. We certainly have toxic masculinity all over the place currently, and we just need to be able to measure that important aspect of, of masculinity with the far more balanced and empathetic and supportive feminine side of our, of our character such that we do rebalance um, the world of work, rebalance ourselves and rebalance society. Now, I found it really interesting that Raj spoke about the fact that business schools are indeed a huge barrier to positive change uh, as we're so wedded to our theories. And I think, you know, I had a conversation actually or an exchange with Mark Crowley recently on LinkedIn, actually, where he was talking about this very topic. And I had this idea just in the moment around uh, instead of an MBA, an MHX, so a Master in Human Experience, what could that look like? We started by truly understanding how to build trust effectively, how to build listening effectively, how to really understand and develop our own purpose and values, how to be curious and truly collaborate effectively. You know, we get those things right, the rest will follow. So, yeah, and just an absolutely amazing conversation with Raj. I'm deeply grateful for him sharing the time and pleased to offer feedback to him and or myself. Um, also, it's helpful um, to spread the message of the podcast if you would not mind writing, uh, leaving a review at itunes this this podcast is called value through vulnerability and i apologize for my voice being a little bit lower in volume and then is ideal when asking questions and reflecting with raj but the critical thing is you can hear raj's feedback uh, crystal clear and i can confirm i've invested in a new um, microphone which i hope will make my voice and my questioning heard a little bit better on future podcasts so uh, thanks for your patience appreciate your feedback and uh, have a great day